My name is Chris Slator. I'm a pulmonology and critical care doctor at the Portland VA Medical Center. I'm here today to talk with uh, Dr. Krishnan, who's a professor of medicine and public health at the University of Illinois, as well as the chair of the Behavioral Science and Health Services Research Assembly at ATS. And we're here today to talk about a recent paper that Dr. Krishnan uh, published on comparative effectiveness research in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. Dr. Krishnan, I read with interest the official ATS research statement on comparative effectiveness research and thought it was very interesting that the ATS wanted to take a position on uh, issues that promote pulmonary and critical care and sleep research. So I was hoping you could introduce this document as well as uh, the co-authors that worked with you on it. I'd be happy to. This official research statement was developed by an ad hoc working group for comparative effectiveness research that included representatives of six ATS assemblies, including the Behavioral Science and Health Services Research Assembly, the Critical Care Assembly, Clinical Problems Assembly, Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology Assembly, Pediatrics Assembly, and the Nursing Assembly. Members of this ad hoc working group included Dr. Shannon Carson, Christopher Goss, Sanjay Patel, Antonio Anzueto, David O., Stuart Elborn, Joe Gerald, Lynn Gerald, Jeremy Kahn, Atul Malhotra, Richard Malarski, Kristen Reichert, Gordon Rubenfeld, Terry Weaver, and myself, Jerry Krishnan. Doctors Carson, Goss, Patel, and myself served as the co-chairs of this ad hoc working group. Dr. Christian, what differentiates effectiveness research from efficacy research? Efficacy studies rely on clinical trials with high internal validity, which are sometimes also called explanatory trials, to answer the question, can it work in optimal conditions? Comparative effectiveness research, by contrast, is intended to answer the question, does it work in clinical practice, and therefore embraces a range of study designs, including clinical trials applicable to clinical practice. These are sometimes called pragmatic trials, but also includes other study designs, such as quasi-experimental designs, including interrupted time series, and observational designs, such as cohort studies. CER studies emphasize the need to involve non-researcher stakeholders as members of the study team, and this is one of the key distinguishing features of comparative effectiveness research compared to the efficacy research. It's important to remind our audience that there are multiple elements of a study design. And these include, for example, the patient population that will be enrolled, and these are typically defined by the eligibility criteria, how the intervention and comparators are specified with respect to dose, frequency, duration, whether or not an active or inactive control group is used, and whether there are interventions to promote adherence to the study protocols, sometimes called treatment fidelity. Also, other aspects of the designs include the selection of the primary and secondary outcomes, as well as the time frame over which assessments of those outcomes will be made, and then the setting in which the study is actually conducted. So there are a number of elements of a study design, and few clinical studies adhere exclusively to the efficacy or the effectiveness principles in all these elements of the study design. Instead, most studies may be more consistent with an efficacy design in certain elements of those designs. For example, they may use highly selective eligibility criteria which exclude patients with multiple chronic conditions or patients who have a history of non-adherence to therapy 
whereas other aspects of the study design may be more aligned with the effectiveness design. For example, in order to be consistent with clinical practice, the study may actually be conducted in primary care or in subspecialty settings but outside of a research setting, such that the intervention itself is being delivered by clinicians who ultimately would be using the treatments being tested as opposed to research staff actually conducting the interventions. Moreover, each of these elements uh, of a study design often exists along a continuum between efficacy and effectiveness. And there's some level of arbitrariness about deciding whether or not it's a, an efficacy or an effectiveness framework for each of these elements. But you could imagine a continuum where it is more oriented towards an efficacy framework, meaning highly selective eligibility criteria, let's say, or an effectiveness framework where a more broadly representative patient population is being enrolled. So efficacy designs and effectiveness designs essentially can differ across multiple dimensions or elements of study design. What comparative effectiveness emphasizes is the need for us to be developing, implementing, and then disseminating evidence that is explicitly linked to stakeholder needs so that the questions that are being tested are mapped to the expressed needs of the end users. And this emphasis of addressing the expressed needs of the stakeholders is one of the most fundamental distinguishing features of comparative effectiveness research in comparison with the efficacy framework. Why is comparative effectiveness research important? So the reason that comparative effectiveness research has received considerable attention in recent years, including the, the lay press, is that there is increasing uh, recognition that the efficacy trial framework, which essentially prioritizes internal validity, may not be sufficient to guide clinical practice. And let me explain that uh, further. The efficacy research design essentially is used to determine if an intervention, it could be a preventative intervention, a screening tool, or a treatment, works under conditions that maximize the internal validity and the likelihood of detecting an intervention effect. And as such, efficacy studies often exclude patients who have significant comorbidities or who may not adhere completely to study procedures. And moreover, efficacy research is generally conducted in highly specialized research settings by trained research personnel who have sufficient resources to ensure that the intervention is delivered appropriately. So efficacy studies are really intended to answer the question, can it work in, in optimal conditions? And therefore, it's an important study design and we have learned a lot from efficacy studies. And so while they're well suited to identifying potential healthcare interventions, the design is less well-equipped to determine how well the intervention works in clinical practice. And just to help our audience understand this a little bit better, I think that most clinicians will recognize that clinical practice settings are characterized by incomplete patient adherence, variable levels of provider expertise, and limited resources uh, to provide support to patients. And under these conditions, it's very likely that when you take an intervention that was demonstrated to be highly efficacious in a research setting, and if you were to implement that into clinical practice, we may find that the benefits are not as, not as large or may not even be discernible 
in clinical practice. And the, this issue of the efficacy to effectiveness gap has gained considerable attention with the increasing healthcare expenditures in the United States and the increasing recognition that we need to better understand what works in clinical practice so that patients and clinicians can make informed decisions about what is likely to help patients and what is likely to harm patients and what may not have a discernible effect. That's very interesting. So it sounds like what you're saying is that comparative effectiveness research is good for understanding what works in the real world. Is that a fair way to say that? So a lot of people have characterized comparative effectiveness research as research in the real world. I think that that oversimplifies it, um, and let me explain why. I think that you know, participants of efficacy studies are also part of the real world. So I wouldn't want you know, our audience to think that only comparative effectiveness studies study patients in the real world. I think what probably the, the, one of the more important aspects that distinguishes comparative effectiveness research from efficacy research is that the design of comparative effectiveness research is intended to account for the variability in patient populations, how well the interventions are applied and the variability with which it's applied into practice and how it's implemented in practice settings. So rather than the focus of real world or not, I would say that efficacy research is about testing interventions in a research setting. Effectiveness research is testing interventions in clinical practice settings. I see. So can you give some examples of maybe when comparative effectiveness research methodologies might be the, the right way to go to answer a question versus when efficacy methodologies might be a better way to answer that question? Sure. In general, as we think about the translational research spectrum from basic research to, to first-in-man studies or sometimes what's called T1 translational research to then trials in, in populations, and then eventually if we keep moving down the translational spectrum where you're now testing interventions into community-based practices and clinical settings and then eventually policy, I think that depending on the intent then you have to decide which is the right design to use. So for example, if you're trying to understand whether a particular treatment option could work in idealized settings in which the intervention is always delivered in the right way, at the right dose, right frequency, right duration, in which you have limited the opportunity for, for individuals who may have adverse outcomes from using the intervention, from being unnecessarily exposed to that particular intervention, and you're trying to essentially establish the potential for this therapy to be used in practice, then one ought to use the efficacy framework. This efficacy framework is incredibly important, essentially, in establishing the intervention as being a treatment option. So, for example, if your basic research identifies molecules as potential therapeutic targets and you've now developed some interventions that specifically address those therapeutic targets, then you would want to use an efficacy framework in testing potential interventions to determine if they are, in fact, improving patient outcomes. Because in these early studies, you want to understand the potential for this intervention to work. Now, fast forward that to eventually understanding how well it works in populations, because ultimately that's the goal. 
most clinicians and patients don't distribute care and don't make decisions about treatment options in research settings. They're making such decisions in clinical practice. And so if you, if you want to know if it's going to work in patients as they routinely receive care in clinical practice, you would then want to use an effectiveness framework to design your research study. That's very interesting, Dr. Krishnan. One question I had was about what do you do when you have discordant findings between effectiveness research and efficacy research? Do you present your patients both answers? Do you synthesize them together in some understandable way? And you know, tell me what your approach is, both in a research sense and in a clinical sense. Sure, that's a very good question. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the efficacy studies are, the design is, is different from the effectiveness studies. And, and let me just explain a couple of differences that could happen so that I could answer your question more fully. So efficacy studies tend to have highly selected patient populations. They may be very prescriptive about how the intervention is deployed, where the dose, duration, frequency, all of that is controlled. The outcome measures tend to be rigorously defined and measure in such a way that they provide highly reliable results. All of these factors, if you will, I think are important in establishing the efficacy, but they don't really translate to how clinical practice occurs. There's much more variability in terms of the kinds of patients that clinicians take care of. So a number of studies, for example, have demonstrated that uh, 90 to 95% of patients that uh, clinicians take care of are not eligible for efficacy trials. And that is based on essentially efficacy trials using highly selective eligibility criteria. Now, as a clinician and as a patient, what do you do in that circumstance? You're faced with an efficacy trial design demonstrating the potential for benefit yet you are now providing care to a patient who was not eligible for the trial, and you don't know necessarily if the trial results would apply to your patient. And this is what happens, as I mentioned, in 90 to 95% of cases in which patients and providers are trying to make healthcare decisions. This is where the benefit and the potential benefit of, of comparative effectiveness research comes in. Now, what can happen is that the results of an efficacy trial and the results of a comparative effectiveness research study may not agree, even when they're using, uh, if you will, a clinical trial design. And, and one of the more recent examples of this uh, was in the asthma literature. So for many years, uh, efficacy trials have generally supported the notion that inhaled corticosteroids uh, are more efficacious than leukotriene modifiers in patients with mild or moderate persistent asthma. However, many patients have difficulty using inhalers, and many patients, even if they are able to use inhalers correctly, uh, don't like the idea of taking corticosteroids for a variety of reasons. And a number of studies have documented that adherence to inhaled corticosteroids is far lower than we would all like it to be. So investigators in the United Kingdom conducted a clinical trial in the effectiveness paradigm, and those kinds of trials are called pragmatic trials. And in this particular case, they found that uh, leukotriene modifiers were as effective as inhaled steroids for long-term control. And, and the reason for that is because patients on average were less adherent to inhaled corticosteroids compared to leukotriene modifiers. And so you, you have the efficacy trial framework indicating largely that inhaled corticosteroids are more efficacious, more beneficial, 
And then you have a comparative effectiveness research study using a clinical trial design indicating that in clinical practice settings, the leukotriene modifiers are as good as inhaled steroids. And so what, what is a clinician and a patient to do in this circumstance? What the authors of this paper concluded is that if a patient was likely to be able to use inhaled corticosteroids as prescribed, so knew how to use an inhaler and was likely to be adherent in using uh, their inhaled corticosteroids, then they're more likely to realize the benefits that the efficacy trial frameworks indicate, which on average, again, favor inhaled corticosteroid therapy compared to leukotriene modifiers. But for the vast majority of patients who have either difficulty using inhalers or have reasons to not want to take corticosteroids, then leukotriene modifiers are just as effective. So in this circumstance, then, you know, providers ought to present to the patient two options and to tailor therapy based on uh, the particular circumstance. So if you have a patient in front of you who is likely to be adherent and would be able to use their inhaler correctly, then you could tell them that you're likely to have benefits over the leukotriene modifier. But if you have difficulty using inhalers or would be likely to be less adherent than prescribed, then a, a leukotriene modifier would be just as effective. So, Dr. Krishnan, that's very interesting. You didn't say this exactly, but I, I want to push you a little bit. And I worry that sort of framework that you present would lead us to offer second best uh, options to our patients. How would you respond to that? So I would respond by saying that uh, I don't think we should ever offer a second best to our patients. I think we should offer them the therapy that they will use and the therapy that will give them the very best benefit that is available. We need to tailor our treatment options to the patient before us. And there are patients that have difficulty using inhaler devices, um, and there, there are patients who have difficulty being adherent. And so I think the first option is we ought to do our very best to provide education and reinforcing the education about how to use devices, to work with them, to develop approaches to improve their adherence to their inhaled corticosteroid therapy. But if after all of these attempts we still find ourselves with patients with difficulty using the device or being adherent to it, then what the comparative effectiveness research provides is an option, is another option for the patient, which essentially, you know, allows you to tailor therapy to the patient's needs and their ability to, to use medications. I see. So it sounds like you're saying that to really be diligent to the patient's values and preferences. And I think one of the aspects that I noted about the research statement was the emphasis on non-researcher stakeholders. And I was curious if that was a new initiative within the comparative effectiveness research framework. I think what comparative effectiveness research is asking us to do is to ensure that the voice of other stakeholders are incorporated in decision-making regarding the most important studies to conduct, uh, how those studies are designed, and how those studies will be disseminated and eventually implemented. I don't think stakeholder engagement is a completely new concept. I think certainly you know, many researchers would say that the efficacy framework also includes stakeholders in, in defining the research priorities and, and conducting the research. So stakeholder engagement is not a completely new concept. Certainly, efficacy trialists would say that research prioritization 
and the conduct of research has been informed by patients, clinicians, and other stakeholders. And that is very true. What distinguishes comparative effectiveness research is that it places greater emphasis on ensuring that the research that is being conducted is responding to the expressed needs of stakeholders and that the stakeholders are engaged throughout the research process from research prioritization to research design to research implementation and research dissemination. Uh, for the audience, I think it's also worth maybe spending a moment and enlisting or at least discussing what we mean by stakeholders. There's no single or standard definition of stakeholder for comparative effectiveness research. The term, rather, is typically used to denote a, a broadly defined end user group. And, and it can include, for example, patients and their caregivers, practicing clinicians, policymakers, industry representatives, private or public health care purchasers, and researchers. So the difference here, and at least the emphasis that comparative effectiveness research is putting into place, is the need to more carefully consider this broad range of stakeholders when making decisions about what studies to conduct, how to design them, how to implement them, and then how to eventually get them disseminated and employed. How would you view the role of the ATS in comparative effectiveness research? The American Thoracic Society, I think, is in an extremely good position to promote comparative effectiveness research. The American Thoracic Society has long been the home of researchers in pulmonary sleep and critical care, but it also includes other stakeholders, including patients and their caregivers, clinicians, as well as members of, of industry and administrators and so on. So within the ATS, we have within our society, if you will, the very stakeholders that comparative effectiveness research is asking to be included in conducting research. And it is for this reason that uh, the American Thoracic Society was supportive of publishing a research statement on comparative effectiveness research is to provide its membership an opportunity to learn a little bit more about what comparative effectiveness research is and how it complements efficacy research and also to encourage our membership to engage other members within the ATS, including patients and clinicians and other groups within the stakeholder continuum in, in the research process. And so also a related question that I had was how could trainees and junior investigators get more involved in comparative effectiveness research? The Behavioral Science and Health Services Research Assembly has long been the home of outcomes research and health services research, which in many ways are related to comparative effectiveness research. Probably, the, again, the, the distinguishing feature is the greater emphasis on being explicit about identifying the stakeholder needs and conducting research that meets stakeholder needs. So I, I would encourage trainees and junior faculty who have an interest in comparative effectiveness research to join the Behavioral Science and Health Services Research Assembly, to come to our business meeting during the American Thoracic Society International Conference, and learn a little bit more about opportunities to get involved. They're also, of course, welcome to, to go to the American Thoracic Society website and uh, contact any of the officers of the Behavioral Science Health Services Research Assembly. We'd be more than happy to guide them about uh, different opportunities that exist in comparative effectiveness research. So uh, I've heard about this 
new institute, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, but I don't know a lot about that. Tell me about what PCORI is and how that relates to comparative effectiveness research. The Affordable Care Act authorized the formation of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, sometimes called PCORI, to promote patient-centered outcomes research to inform patients and their caregivers. Under the Act, patient-centered outcomes research is defined as research that helps people and their caregivers communicate and make informed healthcare decisions, allowing their voices to be heard in assessing the value of healthcare options. Not surprisingly, patient-centered outcomes research has substantial overlap with definitions of comparative effectiveness research, but what distinguishes patient-centered outcomes research is that it provides particular emphasis on studies that address the outcomes that people notice and care about, such as survival, function, symptoms, and health-related quality of life. Patient-centered outcomes research includes comparative effectiveness research designs. So it includes, for example, pragmatic clinical trials. It also includes observational study designs and quasi-experimental study designs. And so PCORI has become, if you will, uh, one of the prime funders of comparative effectiveness research in the last few years and has attracted considerable attention both from ATS members and non-ATS members conducting research in pulmonary sleep and critical care. PCORI very much emphasizes the need to have stakeholder engagement and in order for applications submitted to PCORI in response to their funding announcements, the researcher needs to ensure that stakeholder engagement is more than simply creating an advisory committee that will assist the researchers with dissemination activities after study completion. PCORI emphasizes patient and caregiver engagement throughout the research process, including the prioritization of the research, the actual design of the study, so for example, in selecting the outcomes that will be tested in the study, as well as in the implementation and monitoring of the study conduct, and then participating in the study dissemination activities. PCORI goes to great lengths to emphasize the need to engage patients and caregivers throughout this process, but also welcomes, of course, other stakeholders as previously discussed, including payers, clinicians, professional organizations, members of the industry, and so on. The definitions about which stakeholders are important to include in comparative effectiveness research study is going to depend on the funder. And so our audience should be careful in reading the funding announcement to better understand which stakeholders ought to be engaged in developing comparative effectiveness research applications that are submitted to that particular funding agency. Dr. Krishnan, this has been a wonderful interview, and I've certainly learned a lot. One last question. If you had to have one take-home message for our audience, what would that message be? So the take-home message from the perspective of this research statement is that comparative effectiveness research complements the traditional efficacy research paradigm by placing greater emphasis on measuring the effects of interventions in routine clinical practice and in developing evidence that addresses the needs of the stakeholders involved in making healthcare decisions. The most appropriate study design, that is to say, whether it should be an efficacy trial or an effectiveness trial or an observational study or a quasi-experimental study design really depends on the question that is being asked and what kind of information would the stakeholders find most useful in making decisions.